the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Fletcher. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell's going on? What the hell's going on is you're still in Australia. Danny, for our listeners you know, who have been listening now to like four consecutive episodes of Danny uh, in Australia, she's staying there because she's actually going to visit Taiwan next week for the Taiwan election. So maybe we'll get we'll do an episode about that coming up. But today we're talking about Iran. We're talking about President Trump's strike that took out Iran's terrorist mastermind, Qasem Soleimani, and the Iranian response to that attack. Now, one of the themes in our podcast, Danny, that I've gotten from you is you've been very frustrated with the Trump administration's failure to respond to these escalating attacks from the Iranians. You know, first they attacked the Norwegian and Japanese oil tankers. Then they uh, shot down a U.S. drone. Then they attacked the Saudi oil facilities. And you were, you've been making the case, which I agree with, that we were sending the Iranians a signal that we were weak and that they could escalate. And they escalated and Trump took out Soleimani. So how you like him now? <laughs> Look, I think this was a great decision. You know, you and I both lauded Barack Obama when he made the tough decision to go after Osama bin Laden in the way that he did. I feel exactly the same way about Qasem Soleimani. You've seen, I've seen the unbelievable amount of garbage that is being put out there about how he is adored by the Iranian people, about how you know, he's one of the most senior people, the number three person in the Iranian military, you know, in the Iranian leadership firmament, about how this is an act of war. Honestly, for people who a week ago had no idea who the hell Qasem Soleimani was, we have seen a lot of rubbish new experts born. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And look, the idea that Trump escalated here is preposterous. It was the Iranians who were escalating. I just ticked off the series of attacks that they did, each one bolder than the next, you know, taking taking out allied tankers, shooting down an unmanned drone. And Trump had drawn a red line through Mike Pompeo, who traveled to Baghdad last May and told Iraqi leaders to tell the Iranians that if they killed a single American, there would be a military response and it would not be against their proxies. It would be against Iran. And they seemed convinced that that wasn't going to happen, that Trump wasn't going to pull the trigger. And that's partly Trump's fault because Trump talks about withdrawal a lot and pulling out and not getting involved in wars in the Middle East. And they miscalculated. But you know, Trump didn't escalate. The Iranians escalated. They sent their militia to uh, Shia militia to attack a military base and they killed an American and injured four more. And then while Trump was deciding what to do with that, they raided the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. So the idea that this was an escalation by Trump? No, he showed, I think in yours and my estimation, too much patience with the Iranians. And what I love about this is that he made a major strategic shift, which is he told the Iranians that we will no longer allow you to hide behind your proxies, that if your proxies carry out something, we're going to hold you responsible for it. And he gave the ultimate act of holding Iran responsible, which was taking out Soleimani, who was the mastermind behind all of these proxy forces that Iran has all throughout the Middle East. 
we should really do do everybody a favor and and review some of the bidding about Qasem Soleimani and how many deaths he's been responsible for. I saw that the Washington Post was sort of you know questioning whether Donald Trump was accurate and others were accurate in suggesting that he was responsible for hundreds of American deaths. First of all, folks, Qasem Soleimani is in every sense of the word the Godfather. He is the man who is at the helm of all of Iran's proxy forces. He is the power and the brains was. behind Hezbollah. <laughs> was. Thank you. <laughs> he is no more. Oh. Yes. Well, well, Hezbollah, which has been responsible not just for attacks on Americans, but attacks on Israel, attacks on Lebanon, the death of hundreds of thousands, and I'm not using that number loosely, hundreds of thousands of Syrians. Qasem Soleimani was responsible for the management of the Houthi militias that targeted civilians, that targeted Saudi airports, that targeted Americans. This is a man who was enormously dangerous, who was evil. And you don't hear me use that word lightly. I don't think I've used it before on the podcast. He was someone who had no regard for human life. And for those people who tweeted out pictures of him reading poetry, you know, yeah, I know Hitler loved dogs and children too. That doesn't take away from the terror that he managed, that he orchestrated, that he masterminded. The world is rid of an evil man and good bloody riddance to him. And let me uh, also point out something which the president uh, pointed out in his uh, address to the nation about this, which is that the missiles that rained down on a U.S. base when the Iranians retaliated were paid for with the $150 billion that the Obama administration gave the Iranians as part of the Iran nuclear deal. I would go even further to say that Qasem Soleimani's campaign of terror around the world was financed by the Obama administration's decision to give them that money. When President Trump came into office, Iran was on the march across the Middle East. The Obama administration kept telling us, well, we'll get this nuclear deal and it'll be a first step to bringing Iran back into the community of civilized nations. No. What the Iranians did is they took that money, didn't use it to benefit their people, gave it to Qasem Soleimani and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, and used it to fuel terror across the Middle East, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen. And this is what Trump inherited, which was an Iran that was on the march across the Middle East, fueled by the money they got from the Iran nuclear deal for these people of the previous administration to then, you know, sort of sit there and and criticize President Trump as he was bringing us to the brink of war. He was escalating. This was an irresponsible decision is, quite frankly, pretty rich for me. Yeah, no, look, it is. And I I might have been persuaded to support the JCPOA, the Obama administration's Iran deal, if Obama had been telling the truth that he was determined to ensure that the money that we dumped from helicopters onto the Iranian regime was not going to be used to support their malign agenda in the Middle East. The problem was he wasn't telling the truth. The Obama administration had no intention of containing Iran in the wake of the Iran deal. They became the lawyers for, the agents for, and the propagandists 
for the Islamic Republic of Iran. And you see that on Twitter to this day when senior Obama administration officials are out there basically defending Qasem Soleimani. No doubt. And also, by the way, all the predictions are wrong because they were they were wrong when they were in office and they're wrong today because they were the ones who were saying Trump is bringing us to the brink of a full scale war with Iran. Well, guess what happened after he took out Qasem Soleimani? The Iranians launched an attack on two U.S. bases in Iraq. They called the Iranian prime minister beforehand to tell him that the attack was coming, which was they knew would be get, would be passed on to the Americans so that we could put our troops in force protection positions. They specifically did it not to kill any more Americans and cross Trump's red line again, which he made clear would have resulted in an attack on their Iran proper. And then they said, we're done. This is it. You know, we've made our response and we don't want war. And we've now slapped America in the face. That is the is just an absolutely weak, pathetic response because they know that they would lose a war. And the the lesson of this is a lesson that those of us of a certain age learned from Ronald Reagan, which is you only get peace through strength. You don't get peace through appeasement. And it's it's a lesson of history that people constantly forget. If you don't want a war with Iran, you know, what would have happened if Trump had allowed them to kill an American after drawing a red line, like Obama failed to enforce his red line? Do you think the Iranians would have just stopped there? Of course not. But now we need to move on from this uncharacteristic love fest and get to (laughs) something that does worry me because, okay, Trump did the right thing here. Trump showed resolve. Trump showed courage. But the reality is that the underlying message of his administration is that of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, you know, endless war, let's end this endless war. And what I worry about is having shown this resolve is that we are not going to be as resolute going forward. In other words, we are going to see Iran use their proxies to attack our allies, Israel and our partners, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, others. We are going to see Iran try its best to reassure its proxies that it is still in the game. And I'm worried because of everything that has happened in this administration, because of everything Donald Trump says, that he's not going to be resolute. Don't you worry about that too, Mark? Don't you? A little bit? Oh, I do. I do. Look, I, I mean, I've, I've been as critical as you of the talk of withdrawal and endless wars and all the rest of it. But it's interesting how one of the things that every president in the, since the end of the Cold War who's been elected has been elected on a more humble foreign policy, less, less uh, fighting abroad, and then the reality of the world slaps them in the face when they get here. The Iranians, ironically, their objective is the same one that Trump had in his campaign, which is for the U.S. to withdraw from the Middle East. And now we have the situation in the wake of this where the Iraqi parliament had a symbolic vote. Everyone set their hair on fire about this. But, you know, the symbolic vote that was purely by the Shia members because all the uh, Kurds and and Sunnis didn't show up, basically a uh, sense of Congress resolution saying the U.S. should leave. And Trump basically said, oh, yeah. Then you're going to, I'm going to impose sanctions on you that are worse than the ones on Iran. And oh, by the way, you're going to pay us back for the military bases we built you. And we're not going anywhere. So the Iranians actually succeeded in pushing Trump uh, into the right position when it comes to staying the course in the Middle East. 
Yeah, it's kind of amazing. But and you know what's doubly amazing? I've seen a couple of people tweet about this, but what's doubly amazing is is the fact that this happened after John Colton left the national security. <laughs> yeah, John was the one who was gonna start the war with Iran and now he's gone. <laughs> It's... I know. Oh my God. It just, it really, it, it makes me laugh because it's so in the face of a popular narrative. Uh, and and I, can, I can only imagine what John thought to himself when he saw this news. But, uh, but that's just my little, uh, little bit of private enjoyment there. Yep. But, uh, but like, this is going to be an issue with his base. This is going to be a question. And this is why you see the Mike Lees and the Rand Pauls who have been Trump whisperers on a number of issues. This is why you're going to see them going after him. Uh, and I'm not quite sure whether it leads to good outcomes. The Slamani killing was an unqualified good, but is it going to lead to positive outcomes? Or is this going to lead to an effort to actually pull our troops out of Iraq? Well, we've got the perfect person to talk to us about all this today. He's a good friend of the Padres, General Jack Keane. He's been on with us before. He's a foreign policy and national security expert who is a retired four-star general, former vice chief of staff of the U.S. Army, and currently serves as the chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, as well as a Fox News uh, senior strategic analyst. I talk to him all the time in the Fox Green Room, and I love that he comes onto the podcast to talk to us. So let's turn it over to General Jack Keane. Well, Jack Keane, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, delighted to be here. So, look, we, we've just had probably the most momentous foreign policy event of the Trump presidency. Did Donald Trump win this standoff with the Iranians? Oh, yeah, no doubt about that, in my view. And this is only the second time in 40 years that the Iranians have actually blinked when confronted. The first time was with uh, Ronald Reagan towards the end of his second term when we had the Persian Gulf crisis going on, and, and he took down a Navy base and also some oil fields, and that ended the crisis. And most of our presidents, to include Ronald Reagan, before that, you have failed to confront this regime. And Donald Trump deserves a lot of credit, one, for changing the appeasement strategy of Obama and moving to a confrontational strategy, which he shared with the 55 leaders in the Middle East in July of 2017 in Riyadh. And he told them, I'm going to stand with you and confront the Iranian regime, and he chose economic sanctions as the vehicle, not guns, not bullets, sanctions, and heading towards a diplomatic and political solution. I think he's on a moral high ground now. I think he's got them back on their heels. And it remains to be seen if there'll be a diplomatic opening as a result of it. Uh, The Iranians may very well just be waiting to see if Donald Trump's going to be elected or not. Give us your assessment of the Iranian response. I believe the response was designed to not hurt Americans, that it was designed as a public relations tool for their own people. The Iranians have never been as spooked as they are about their own population. I think they genuinely now see them as a potential threat to their regime. And I think by taking action and and advertising it as a serious action to their own people, is part of their propaganda that they're creating. But clearly, they fully knew that if if they had killed Americans, uh, something worse was going to happen to them. The president had promised them that. And I think the fact that the president had shown so much restraint for almost a year, from the drone being shot down to the, the bombing and seizing tankers to hitting oil production facilities, and then, of course, the large Saudi airfield, 10 attacks on bases that were housing U.S. soldiers with rockets 
and the president didn't do anything. I didn't agree with all of that, to be frank about it, and I spoke publicly against it and privately with some people in the administration. But then on the 11th attack, because an American was killed and four of our troops wounded, the president acted with the five airstrikes and then also with Soleimani as a result of storming the embassy. But more importantly, they knew they had actionable intelligence. I was told by two high-ranking government officials on Friday uh, after the attack. I think they wanted to see what my reaction would be publicly, and they assured me that they had exquisite intelligence, their term, not mine, on multiple targets at multiple locations. And their judgment was, well, okay, what can we do? And they have options. They wanted to disrupt or prevent that attack. And they felt the best option that was available to them was Soleimani, and they had been tracking him anyway. And, you know, he's not hard to find because I think it's come out publicly in the last few years, I believe Soleimani, his own arrogance got a hold of him. I think he thought he was infallible, invincible. And he, I think he had, in his mind, a certain immunity, you know, from uh, American presidents that they were not going to target him. And that led uh, to him being so visible. Here's a guy flying in and out and through... Uh, airspace that the United States controls. That's how arrogant he is. And well, we don't know where he is. Of course we know where he is. So yes, it, it was very well done. And the president's restraint, I think, helps to legitimize what he did when he finally took some action. And it stunned and surprised Khomeini and his regime because they flat did not expect that to happen. And I think they were reeling as a result of it and clearly backing down as they did when Reagan pulled the trigger. I want to step back for a second, because you have spent more time than many going back and forth to Iraq, working with our military commanders. And I think this is something that deserves a wider aperture, because although we keep hearing from everybody in D.C. that they knew full well who Qasem Soleimani was and what the Quds Force is, the reality is that it's our troops on the ground and our commanders who had the most experience. What was this man to our forces on the ground in Syria and in Iraq over the last two decades? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, Qasem Soleimani took proxy warfare to a very new level. The Iranians obviously used proxies when they blew up our two embassies in Lebanon and Kuwait in the early 80s in our marine barracks. And they also used proxies when they blew up Kobar Towers in the mid-90s. And Qasem Soleimani came in in the late 90s as the head of the Quds Force, but he he really took it to a, an extraordinary level because he, he, he took the Hezbollah model and he exported it to uh, Iraqi Shias, to uh, uh, Afghans, and also to Pakistanis. The sum total of that is somewhere in excess of 100,000 uh, proxies that he had out there with guns, uh, doing his business. And at one point uh, during the Syrian war, which, by the way, our audience should know that in terms of the ground operations and where things were taking place, it was the Iranians who were running that ground war. Assad's forces were decapitated very early on, and they had huge morale problems. Soleimani really stepped in, and he supervised what was taking place there. He provided oversight. It's not that he was on the ground every day. He was not, but he was in and out of there constantly. They lost four or five IRGC generals in that fight there. But at one time, he had tens of thousands of Hezbollah in there. He had thousands of Iraqi Shia militia. He had thousands of Afghan proxies in there and thousands of Pakistani proxies. Now, this is not well known to people. 
what he did in Iraq is he took the Iraqi Shia militia and he brought them to two bases in Iran and he brought Hezbollah commanders and officers out of Lebanon to train them and they trained them routinely there. And it was there that they trained him on how to use the advanced IED that his scientists and engineers developed, which could penetrate any known armor on the battlefield. In other words, it could penetrate an Abrams tank, and it did, and, and, and kill those tanks. And they gave him also uh, rockets and mortars to use, and also money. And they came back, and he told them, don't use these munitions on the Iraqi security forces, don't use them on civilians, use them exclusively against Americans. And that they did. And the casualties rose proportionately to that. The given number is 600, uh, which is most people are using, that were killed and thousands wounded. Lloyd Alston, who was our last commander, who I just saw a little while ago at Walter Reed, confirmed for me again, he said, sir, he told me this a number of years ago. He said, sir, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of, of, of 1,500 to 2,000 that they killed, in my judgment. Now, in 2008, our audience should also know, as a result of the surge, in seven, we beat back the al-Qaeda. And then in 2008, in conjunction with Iraqi security forces, we beat back the Iranian-backed Shia militia in Basra and also uh, Maktada, Sada's forces in Sada City. So we did finally have our way with them. But we made a significant mistake, Danny. Many people were advocating we should have taken down those two training bases once we detected them and once we knew what they were doing. And I know for a fact that the national security team that was advising President Bush in 2007 made that recommendation, and he chose not to do it. And that is a fact. I can tell you that because I've spoken to people at the highest levels about it. And it's inexplicable that, that he did not respond. But it, it, it fit a pattern of not confronting the Iranians directly uh, that, that has been, a, been existing for almost 40 years. Let me just follow up quickly because I, want, I think you are the best person also to take on a trope I keep hearing from the media and from those who are sort of animated either by their love of Iran or their hatred of Donald Trump. I can never figure out which. But they are saying, people are saying that killing one man is not going to be effective in harming or in destabilizing the Quds Force and its activities. I have seen many examples that I could cite where killing a pivotal figure has actually had a huge impact on the operations. But you know this stuff better than I do. What's your experience? Yeah, I, I think when you take down somebody like Soleimani, who's been in power for over 20 years, and he's the number two power in the country, and he's, he's affecting operations in Lebanon, Syria, Yemen, Iraq, and encroaching on Israel's uh, security. Oh, and I should have mentioned before, he, he added sophistication and depth to the worldwide terrorist network. When he became almost a cult figure among all those proxy forces that he would visit on a regular basis, and even inside Iran, he was very much a symbol of Iranian military might, all resident in one person. So yes, taking him down, an iconic cult figure like that, has huge symbology, and more important, it affects them operationally. I, I believe that Khomeini is reeling from this, was pushed back on his heels, and here's why. When he sits around that conference table 
with his leaders, and Soleimani is not in the room. The guy that executed all of his foreign policy, all of his foreign wars, and had such success in doing that. He wasn't perfect, and he made some serious mistakes at times, but his batting average was pretty good, mainly because of U.S. complacency, in my judgment. But when he looked around that conference room, there's nobody, but nobody, that can fill those shoes. So, yeah, they're affected operationally, and I think it's one of the reasons why they blinked, because he's gone, and it's affecting all of them. So I agree 100% with Danny on this. And, you know, the way I would describe Soleimani to people who, you know, may not follow the inner workings of the Iranian regime is he was he was Iran's Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. He was the operational commander, the, the terrorist mastermind, an evil genius who came up with all their strategies and their plans. And, you know, to say that taking Soleimani off the battlefield won't affect Iran's capability to carry out terror. It's like saying taking KSM off the battlefield wouldn't affect al-Qaeda's ability. You know, is, is Iran's ability to carry out terror going to be significantly eroded now? Well, I think it'll be for a while because of the impact he had. It, it was personally Soleimani who made two visits in 2015 to Moscow. He made his first visit early in the year to motivate Putin to get into the war, military intervention. He had to be convinced, and he didn't sign up on the first visit. So Soleimani goes back on the second visit, and now it's spring. And at that visit, he agreed to do it. I don't know if he agreed right in front of him, but that August and September, they were moving into uh, Syria. And they needed that air power because the Assad's air power was depleted except for the barrel bombing, and they're having some major problems, particularly with the uh, al-Qaeda opposition in Syria. So that war in Syria raging on, and the success that they've been able to have, again, U.S. complacency is a major contributor here, could never have been done without Soleimani. And then, of course, it was Iran's instigation and catalyst that motivated the Houthis to topple a regime in Yemen that was friendly to the United States and to our allies. And that produced another human catastrophe. And then Soleimani is absolutely embedded into Iraqi politics. And what has taken place there, he helped build a popular mobilization unit to a force of 130 to 150,000. A large portion of that is Iranian-backed Iraqi Shia militia. And yes, the impact is, uh, is quite extensive. And his loss is going to be felt seriously. Jack, talk to us a little bit about how much courage this decision took for the president to make it. Before we went on the air, we were talking a little bit about how long President Obama sat on the intelligence about bin Laden before pulling the trigger. Um, but this is a big, big decision for the commander-in-chief. And this comes on the heels of his decision to take out Baghdadi, which was also a, a very bold decision. How much courage did this take? And what does this say about President Trump as commander-in-chief? Yeah. You know, I think in, in looking at this through the years, when leaders are making decisions like this, the adverse consequences are always there. There's always going to be some kind of retaliation. But what happens to leaders is they can't find their spine. And what happens is they get paralyzed by the fear of the adverse consequence. That becomes the significant embodiment in the decision. And you, you saw that throughout Obama's eight years as president. He was constantly paralyzed by the fear of adverse consequence. He couldn't find his spine to overcome the fear. You know there's going to be adverse consequence. You know there's going to be retaliation. 
but you got to see the merit of taking the action and weigh that against that retaliation and then have the courage to make that decision. This one, I think, was very, very significant, much more significant than Baghdadi. Baghdadi was complicated by how challenging the actual operation was, the distances involved, multiple airspaces that they're transiting through, uh, the potential for compromising the operation, the potential for operational failure, not so much adverse consequence of retaliation. It was having to absorb the blame for mission failure, something like happened to Jimmy Carter in trying to take down the Iranians who were holding our hostages. But this one, he knew there would be retaliation. He knew there was going to be consequences. He probably also knew that all of his political opponents were going to come after him and, and accuse him of actually starting a war. When President Trump, from the outset, has been trying to do something completely opposite from that, He's trying to move the Iranians to a diplomatic and a political solution. So, yeah, I, I think there had to be a, a sense of fear there that he had to overcome. So, yeah, it, it, it is about courage. It's a, I'm, I'm glad you brought the word up. It does take courage to do that. And, you know, you, you have all sorts of advisors telling you everything, but there's only one person in our government that's actually accountable for the protection of the American people. It's not the Secretary of Defense. It's not the CIA guy. It's certainly not the Secretary of State. There's only one person that's accountable for the protection of the American people. And I think most presidents recognize the seriousness of that once they're in that office for sure, because then they feel the emotional burden of what that truly means. It's one thing to talk about. It's another thing to live it day in and day out. And that burden had to be there. But I would imagine when it came down to it, what, what enabled him to overcome the fear of adverse consequence was at the end of the day, he knew he was protecting American soldiers and American diplomats based on the intelligence he had. And that gave him the courage to make the decision, uh, regardless of what the Iranians were going to do. Jack, you talk about blowback and the fact that that had to be factored in. And I think that's right from the Iranian standpoint. But we've seen an example of that. We've seen what the Iranians have done. They've, uh, as you said, they, they struck an Iraqi base where Americans and Iraqis were present, but they very clearly and deliberately did not target American troops. What do you think we should expect from the Iranians and I'll tell you my guess, because I, I would love to, to be corrected or have a better appreciation. My feeling is that the Iranians go to their sweet spot, which is they use their proxies. Their proxies are expendable, and, and they use Hezbollah or Hamas or the, the popular mobilization units in Iraq, the Hashta Shabi, to start a campaign targeting the United States. Do you think that's likely, or do you think they are really afraid of what the consequences might be? Yeah, that's interesting. Um... Let me make a couple of points before I completely answer that question directly. The first is the choices that they had. We have 80,000 troops in the Middle East. President Trump has put about 14,000 more there on the ground in one capacity. I'm not talking about ships sailing up and down the Persian Gulf. And we have significant ground bases in multiple countries. We have significant air bases in multiple countries, and we have a significant Navy base in, in Bahrain. So that all adds up to 80,000 troops. And most of those bases, they're all U.S. bases. 
There's no, no one else on the base. All of those were reachable from Iranian short-range ballistic missiles. So they fired at two Iraqi bases that used to be U.S. bases, and they only fired 15 weapons. Almost a third of them didn't, didn't quite get there. And now, now, why did they do the firing? Why didn't they let the, their proxies do it? Well, I think there's two reasons for that. One is they wanted to control the outcome, and they didn't want to delegate something like that to the proxies who have a tendency to be heated, emotional, and maybe they'd go a little nuts, and their weapons are not as good as what Iranians have. And secondly, they, they may have feared they wouldn't be able to control them as well. So they wanted control that outcome. Also, I think they wanted the propaganda value of taking films of these uh, missiles taking off from Iran heading towards uh, Americans in, in Iraq. So they had a lot of choices. If they really wanted to hurt us, they could have slammed us at one of those bases, and there would have been casualties from that. But they also knew that Trump would have seriously you know, reacted to something like that. The proxy issue. Yes, that has been their mantra for 40 years. I believe they're going to go back to it, but they're going to be very careful. I think they'll go back to activities that have more to do with our allies than they have to do with us. Because if they're going to go after, whether it's a proxy or an Iranian going after Americans, that line has been drawn and they know that this is a no-nonsense president. And the next time Americans get killed, he's going to do something even worse. I don't believe the Iranians are going to come running to the negotiating table right away with a, a political and diplomatic solution here because I don't think that's yet in their interest. I think the fact that the uncertainty of whether this president has got a second term or not will help drive some of those decisions for them. And something that I think is particularly outrageous that you and Mark are aware of is that we have Democratic leaders, senior Democratic leaders, as well as Europeans, by the way, telling the Iranian regime as late as this last month that just wait this president out and we get a Democratic president in, you'll have a better political solution than what you have right now, which I think is really uh, outrageous behavior. Jack, isn't one of the when it comes to proxies, one of the strategic innovations of what Trump just did is that he held Tehran responsible for the actions of their proxies, which is something that previous administrations had not really done. And we, as you said, President Bush didn't go after those bases in, in Iran. He didn't hold Soleimani responsible. Trump literally held that the attack that killed the American that's precipitated all this was a Shia militia attack. And he held Soleimani and the Iranian regime responsible. So that's a major shift in our strategy, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And it's something that should have been done a long, long time ago. And President Trump had said that right from the beginning, that he was going to hold the, the proxies liable. And what I was told from the two government officials who called me on Friday after the attack, that Soleimani was actually directing and coordinating the execution of this operation. He was personally engaged in it, and some of the visits he had made were visits that were contributing to operational success. So, yeah, I think they had, you know, they had options. If they know where the attack is, because they had such great good intelligence, and the locations, 
uh, they may not know exactly what the timing is. There's a lot of things they could do to shore up that situation for themselves and also be able to uh, be ready to target uh, someone who's going to be shooting at them. But I think they realize and I think successfully recognize that, listen, all of that's very iffy. The best thing to do, we've got this guy's fingerprints on the operational planning and coordination and also directing this operation. Let's take him down. And that, they had no guarantee of it, that may at least disrupt this operation or actually prevent it. And it prevented it. So you bring up a really important question, which is, you know, what the actual circumstances were. Now, I don't know whether you you probably haven't seen because it's happened while we're talking, but Senator Mike Lee, Senator Rand Paul, and Senator Chris Murphy all walked out of a State Department briefing and denounced the president, denounced the decision to eliminate Soleimani, and said that there was no imminent attack that could have or should have precipitated this strike. Now, I could have told you they were going to say that beforehand, so, you know, not not really a surprise. But the president has made a number of statements that make clear that he was at least fixated on preventing an attack. Help us understand the opposition to this and, you know, how you see the credibility of what he said and, you know, how you see a little bit the political debate that's going on. Yeah, I mean, I think on the one hand, particularly by his political opponents in his opposition party, no matter what he does, they seem to be opposed to it. it it's it's one of the saddest things I've ever observed to take down uh, somebody who, in terms of its impact, on America's policy in the Middle East is is more significant than Osama bin Laden, in my view, and certainly more than Baghdadi. And, that, and to take him down and then have people be so fundamentally opposed to it, I, I think if Barack Obama had done it, he'd be feted for it by the Democrats and by the Republicans. They would say it was a bold move. So, I mean, this political divisiveness and, and how it impacts now foreign policy and national security and people are drawing battle lines over it is, is really something that's sickening to watch. But uh, all that said, what happens with people in the narrative, uh, the isolationists who you mentioned, I mean, their fear is, is this is going to lead to a war. To me, it seemed like a false argument right from the beginning. Why is that? One, if anybody knows anything about this regime, they know that their number one priority is preservation of the regime and their staying in power. These are thugs and killers masquerading as clerics and mullahs. They are really bad people, and that's all they desire. And they conduct their ambitious foreign policy to spread the Islamic revolution at the expense of their own people. Secondly, President Trump, from the outset, we all know the last thing that this president wants to do is start another war, particularly in the Middle East. He's absolutely fundamentally opposed to it before he ever became president for years. So he does not want to do that. And I think he rightfully saw, as did his advisors, that taking down Soleimani is a step towards preventing war because it'll force the Iranians to de-escalate as opposed to escalate. And that is the outcome that we got. If people can't see that now, after Iran's activity, then they're never going to see it because they're just blinded, you know, by their own emotional and psychological commitment to their point of view. 
I mean, I couldn't agree with you more, Jack. And I mean, to, just to put it in context, in 1986, I wrote a column on this, but in 1986, when Ronald Reagan took a decapitation strike at Gaddafi uh, after he killed an American in a, in a disco in West Berlin, Tip O'Neill, who was the Democratic speaker, said, and this is a quote, all this started because of the evil heart of a bad man. Every time he escalates, we have to strike. And the Democrats in Congress supported Ronald Reagan in that action. I mean, we've gotten to a point where this political polarization and Trump hatred is harming our national security, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you 100 uh, percent. It's much, much more than politics, much more than elections. It's really, it, it does handcuff us and it, it weakens us out there in the world. But I think what Donald Trump is, has done and what his intent was to do is to make America stronger. He's made us considerably stronger economically. I mean, I, I, it's likely exceeded his own expectations and those of his advisors. You know, the, the collective combination of reducing taxes, corporate taxes, and get deregulating and all the other initiatives that they've taken has, has made America very strong economically. And by the way, that helps us in, have leverage in the world, particularly at a time when so many countries in the world, their economy is stagnant or it's receding. Uh, or contracting. And then the second thing is, he's rebuilding the United States military, much as Reagan did when we came out of the Vietnam War. He knew we were in bad shape, and we had to take on the Soviet Union, and they were looking at our capabilities, and they're not playing games about it. They're going to take a hard look at it. He knew we had to have real capability there. Well, Trump understood that, too. He had enough people tell him, you know, the, the United States military has suffered significant atrophy because of the 9-11 wars, and we had to rebuild it. And he, he's taken that on, and strong economy, strong military. And then the third thing I think he's done is strong leadership. And that is a deadly combination when you're leveraging the United States elements of national power around the world. So I, I think we're in a stronger position uh, under his leadership, despite some of the disagreements you have with how he goes about it and how he talks about it every single day on, on a personal level. But that's not going to change. And it is unfortunate that when something like this takes place and when you see that an American president is motivated by saving American lives and he doesn't get credit for that, if he had failed to do that and those attacks came at the multi multiple locations, multiple targets, as the senior officials were saying, and we lost those lives and then it became known that the president had intelligence on all of that and didn't act, that that would be a failure of his uh, obligation to protect the American people. And he would be he would deserve not to be reelected based on that failure. So I'm at a loss at times to deal with the, the divisiveness and how it is hurting our country overseas. Jack, thank you so much for being with yeah, us today. Great talking to you guys, Danny, Mark. Thank you. Well, Danny, Jack Keane never disappoints. What, what, are, what do you take away from what he told us? Look, I think Jack's analysis is spot on. He really does have the experience on the ground that gives the lie to a lot of the arguments that, A, Qasem Soleimani was not the bad monster that the president has described him to be, or that it won't be a significant blow to the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, Quds Force, of which uh, Soleimani led. So all of the above. But I think Jack also worries about the same thing you and I worry about, which is, you know, hey, Donald Trump, stay the course. I agree, though I will tell you this particular decision 
has really in- increased my admiration for Donald Trump as a commander in chief. When I was in the in the White House, I remember uh, President Bush had Tony Blair over for his final meeting before Gordon Brown became the prime minister uh, in the UK. And he, Tony Blair was a courageous leader. And President Bush asked him, how am I going to like Gordon Brown? And Blair said, he's an incredibly intelligent man. And Bush said, I don't need intelligence. I need courage. Is he courageous? And Blair said, he's an incredibly intelligent man. <laughs> and <laughs> and the, you know, yeah, the, 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 yeah. point, the point being is like, look, the, if you're, when you're president of the United States, you've got lots of, you, you, you can bring the smartest people in the world in to surround you and give you advice and information. And you have to be intelligent. But, you know, deep knowledge of the world and history is not the most important element of the presidency. What's important is decisiveness, willing to make decisions, and courage. And Trump showed enormous courage in making this decision. He showed enormous courage in taking out Baghdadi. Obama sat on the intelligence for a long time about Osama bin Laden's whereabouts rather than, than carry out that attack. It was it, He really took a long time. Trump didn't hesitate with Baghdadi. He didn't hesitate with Soleimani. And that kind of decisiveness and courage in a commander-in-chief is probably the most important attribute that we need uh, in a president in it, when it comes to keeping the country safe. Yes. Let's just hope that he maintains that decisiveness and Agreed. that courage. And let's, let's, let's exit on, on one note of just amazement. Nancy Pelosi is going to have a vote to require Donald Trump to cease all military action against Iran unless it's approved by Congress. Good Lord. What? What is what is wrong with the Democrats? They literally they hate Donald Trump so much that they can't. If he if he said the sky was blue, they'd say no, it's red. It doesn't matter what he does. They're, they're so driven by their impeachment, get rid of Trump, Trump derangement mindset that they can't back the president in a confrontation with Iran, which is an indisputably evil regime, and Soleimani was an indisputably evil man. And Trump, the Trump derangement on the left and with some on the right, you know, I get it. I understand why people don't like him. But it's gotten to the it's gotten so bad that it's it's really hurting our national security. The idea that while Trump is sending a message of resolve to the Iranians, that Nancy Pelosi would choose to try and tie his hands in that confrontation is simply appalling. It is. And and it puts her in the position of making the Democrats useful dupes for the Iranians, which, you know, there are so many good people in the Democratic caucus, just as there are so many good people in the Republican caucus who actually care more about the American people than they do about party politics. And I, I what can I say? I don't get it. I don't understand it. I think it's terrible for the country. But, uh, you know, at least this was this was a good this was a good news week on and a good blow against Iran. Amen. That's a good place to end. Danny, yep, come home safely is. and uh, don't get don't get killed by the Chinese when you're going over there to the Taiwan elections. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank and, you very much, Mark. And save and save some of those koalas. Okay. Can you bring some home with you? Oh my God, this is a terrible tragedy here. It really is. This poor fuzzy, poor fuzzy creatures and and people whose lives uh, have really been been devastated by this. So, I, I wish it was just the koalas and not and not the human beings that live in Victoria and New South Wales. But you know, hopefully Australia is getting a good handle on this now. Awesome. All right. See you later, Danny. Okay. Bye. Thanks, Mark. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. 
Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.